Hello and welcome to another episode of Life in the Dark, a podcast dedicated to the golden age of radio and Hollywood's classic era. This podcast is part of the Nomad in the Middle network. More information can be found at nomadinthemiddle.com. Another cup of Maxwell House coffee, George? Sure. Pour me a cup, Gracie. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last... Drop. And that drop's good, too. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Alice. With yours truly, Bill Goodwin, the music of Meredith Wilson and his orchestra, our happy postman, and our special guest, the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer star, Clark Gable. For your Thursday night comedy enjoyment, it's George and Gracie. And for your everyday coffee-drinking enjoyment, it's Maxwell House, expertly blended and radiant roasted for rich, mellow, extra flavor. Maxwell House, the coffee that's always good to the last drop. Well, this is the day, the showdown, the payoff. Today, Clark Gable and George Burns meet face to face to decide once and for all which will play the lead in the picture, The Hucksters. Who will win? The man with good looks or the man with talent? Or will George win? (laughs) This is the question the whole country is discussing today. Let's see what radio's top news commentators are saying. Are there's weird news tonight? I <laughs> oh, yes, George Bonds may replace Clark Gable. And buggy whip manufacturers are greatly encouraged. They say, if this can happen to the ho- the horse can replace the automobile. <laughs> well, today George Burns makes his final effort to gain a cinema career at the expense of Clark Gable. Well, well, this raises a particularly interesting question. <laughs> Would it be better to keep Burns in radio where he is terrible or put him in pictures where he'd be horrible? Naturally, this is also the subject of discussion as we look in at the Burns' home. Uh, see how this sounds, George. I just wrote it. Mr. Clark Gable, formerly of the movies, Invites you to attend the opening of his used car lot at Figueroa. Wait a minute. <laughs> Clark Abel is opening a used car lot? Well, he hasn't yet, but I'm just trying to be helpful. When you make this picture, the poor man will be out of a job. I see. Well, you didn't let me finish the announcement. Oh. His used car lot at Figueroa and Sunset. Come in and see Clark Abel, the smiling Indian. <laughs> Indian? After he sees your performance, will his face be red? Gracie, I haven't made the picture. You're counting the chickens before they hatch. But, George, you're a natural for the Hucksters. It's all about radio, and you've been in radio for 15 years. Mm, That's true. Well, it's only fair that you hatch the chickens. For 15 years, you've been laying the groundwork. (laughs) Well, I don't think Clark Abel will have to run a used car lot. Say, I've got a better idea. He can make it a used car lot during the day and a parking lot at night. He could put up a sign that would attract thousands of women. What's that? Park in the dark with Clark. <laughs> I see. I wouldn't worry about Clark if I were you. George, I've got it. You're taking his place. Let him take yours and be a comedian. Oh, stop. Oh, he'd be very funny. Women are just dying for a chance to laugh at his mustache. They are? Oh, yes. I've heard lots of them say they'd love to be tickled by it. Gracie, I'm the one to worry about, not Gable. I haven't got a chance in 10,000 to replace that guy. Here, look at the picture of him in this movie magazine. Let's see it. Look at, look at Gable's face. How can I compete with those dimples? Oh, pooh. 
two little round dimples. Look at your face. You've got dozens of nice long ones. <laughs> Look at those broad shoulders. He's got the kind of figure women are crazy about. Not me. I'd much rather have your figure. You would? Sure. If I had his figure, I'd look like a man. <laughs> Thanks. I'll answer it. Good morning, Missy Burns. <laughs> Here's your mail Oh, thanks, Mr. Postman mm, I'm so excited This is the day George will meet Clark Gable Oh, I admire Mr. <laughs> He and I are so similar The same rugged, robust type Two members of the Brotherhood of Brawn Well, don't you think George is a member of the Brotherhood of Brawn? No, I'd say he belongs to the fraternity of Flab. Oh, Mr. Postman. What's more, Mr. Gable is quite a woodsman. He goes into the North Woods and hunts moose. I wish he'd take my wife with him. Why? She'd make a wonderful decoy. <laughs> she looks just like a moose. No, no, it wouldn't work, Mr. Postman. No moose would take her for a moose. I know, but some hunter might. Well, I'm going over to see Clark Gable right now, and we'll just see who wins. My money's on Gable. The public will always have a place in its heart for him. Oh, and there's a place for George, too. A very warm place. Yes, and he should go there. <laughs> well, goodbye, Mrs. Burns. And remember, keep smiling. <laughs> Did I ever leave Wyoming? Or tell me why, oh, why did I ever have to go? Oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Wyoming? Cause there's a sheriff back there looking for me high and low and high and low and high. And Wyoming. Well, that's a mighty Ooh. nice tune about a mighty nice state sung by Mr. Bill Goodman. Oh, please. <laughs> you really gave on that one, Curly. You really gave. Well, Meredith, Western songs always send me. And after all, what's more Western than Wyoming? From Bighorn Basin and the Wind River Valley to Goshen Hole and the Cheyenne Plains, the cowboys are still riding hard and handsome. Yes, Wyoming's a mighty colorful and exciting part of the American scene. And you know that brings to mind how Maxwell House is truly a real part of the American scene, too. We Americans love coffee and made it our national drink. And it's a fact that more people buy and enjoy Maxwell House than any other brand of coffee at any price. Northeast, south, and west, it's Maxwell House wherever you go. Flavor explains this nationwide preference, the rich, vigorous Maxwell House flavor that results from the skillful blending of these choice, highland-grown Latin American coffees. Manizales for mellowness. Medellins for richness. Other fine coffees for vigor. and Bucaramanga's for full body. The sum of which is great coffee at its flavor peak. So why not enjoy the very best in mellow, satisfying coffee-drinking pleasure? It's yours for just a fraction of a penny more per cup than you'd pay for the cheapest coffees sold. Just say, Maxwell House. Always good to the last... We now find Gracie arriving at Clark Gable's house to tell him that he must relinquish the lead in the Hucksters to her husband, George Burns. Confident of success, she sings happily as she knocks on the door. Your rumba, ay, your samba, ay, your conga. Yes? Ay, ay, ay. (laughs) 
Won't you come in? I say, won't you come in? Hmm? <laughs> in? In. Oh, of course. Oh, thank you. Now, what did you want to see me about? Well, you know, for the life of me, I can't remember. <laughs> oh, now I do. I want to talk to you about George Burns. George uh, Burns? Yes. He's the man who's going to take your place in that picture, the Hucksters. Oh, yes, yes. They told me about him at the studio. Mental case, isn't he? <laughs> oh, no, I should say not. He's as smart as I am. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Is he a friend of yours? Well, we used to be friends. Then we got married. <laughs> I mean, now he's my husband. And a wonderful man, Mr. Gable. I'm sure he must be wonderful if he's married to you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Now, tell me more about Mr. Burns. I say, tell me more about Mr. Burns. Hmm? <laughs> Burns? Oh, my husband. Well, he's the logical one to take your place because he's your type of man. Rugged yet handsome. An outdoor man. Loves to go hunting. Oh, loves hunting, huh? Your husband begins to interest me. Oh, I thought that would do it. Uh, where does he do most of his hunting? Oh, he's hunted everywhere. India, Africa, Egypt. Egypt? Yeah, the land of the Sphinx. <laughs> uh, what did he shoot there? Only the largest Sphinx ever shot. <laughs> ever shoot a Sphinx, Mr. Gable? No, no, the meat's a little too gamey. Oh, well, George hunts everywhere. He shoots a moose in Alaska, and then he knocks off a deer in Canada. Oh, what's the matter with the game in this country? Hasn't he ever shot a buck in northern Michigan? He played a little poker in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> but he'd much rather hunt. Well, I suppose he's concentrating on duck hunting right now. Oh, yes, yes. He's out every day shooting down ducks out there in the... wherever it is you shoot down ducks. Blind? Oh, no, he never touches the stuff. <laughs> Just loves to hunt. Uh, what uh, kind of retriever does he use? He uses... Mm -hmm. uh, what's his favorite dog? Oh, hot. <laughs> heavy on the mustard. No, no, I, uh, I mean four-footed dog. What kind of dog does he use to retrieve the ducks? Oh, uh, one of those regular little duck dogs. Uh, 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 ducks, hun. They're awfully cute. <laughs> yes, but a little impractical. Here, let me show you what I mean by a retriever. Here, here, girl. <laughs> Isn't she beautiful? She's a Labrador retriever. Aren't you, Hetty? Did, did you call her Hetty? Oh, yes, yes. That's a little whim of mine. I'm very fond of my hunting dogs, and I've named all of them after leading ladies in my pictures. I have two other prize retrievers named Lana and Claudette. Oh, are they all girl dogs? Well, I've found that females obey me better than males. <laughs> they, uh, they seem to like me better. Uh... <laughs> Watch now how Hetty reacts when I pat her head. Nice. <laughs> I know just how you feel, Hetty. Oh, oh my goodness. What are those things in that room? Where? All those heads sticking through that wall. Oh, those are my trophies. Now, this is a moose head, here's a deer head, a lion's head, and here's a boar's head. Aren't they beautiful? Yeah. But I'll bet the other side of the wall doesn't look so good. <laughs> well, so much for hunting. Now, I I'd like you to meet George. I'm glad I had an opportunity to tell you about him. At least you know my husband isn't a mental case. That's right. Now I'm curious to know why he isn't. Well, um, we'll expect you at our house in a half an hour. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Gable. Goodbye, Mrs. Burns. Say, 
Gracie, I can't compare with Gable. He's one of the greatest lovers on the screen. Oh, I'm sure you can kiss better than he can. Kiss me, George. Okay. Oh, Gable's through. <laughs> he is? Sure, you can kiss better than he can. And if he can't kiss better than that, he's through. Gracie, Gable is dynamite with women. I've seen him in those pictures with Hedy Lamarr and Claudette Colbert and Lana Turner. I'll bet he's just as great off the screen. Oh, here he is now. I'll show him in. I'll show him in. You show him up. <laughs> oh, hello, Mr. Gable. Come right in. Thanks, Mrs. Burns. Um, Mr. Gable, I'd like you to meet Mr. Burns. How do you do, Mr. Burns? Hello. I understand that your son wants to replace me in a picture. <laughs> My son? No, uh, Mr. Gable, this is my husband. <laughs> this is George? Yeah. George, George Burns, the clock Gable of tomorrow. Uh, look him over and see if you don't think he's the perfect choice. Well, uh, what do you say? <laughs> this is George? Now, think for a minute and then tell me what your decision is. Well? This is George? Well, I don't know. You may be a good actor, but you're a very poor conversationalist. Oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Burns, but I was taken unawares. Oh, well, now you two men have a chat while I go in the kitchen and make some coffee. And then we'll sit down and thrash this all out. You know, Mr. Gable, I'm embarrassed having my wife compare me with you. I think you're a terrific guy. And I think your uh, wife thinks you are, too. <laughs> yeah. No, I hope this discussion won't last too long. I've got to get home to Hetty and Lana and Claudette. Hmm. My wife and I were just talking about them. Are they all at your house? Yes, they're waiting to be fed. Feeding <laughs> all three of them must run into money. Oh, no. Horse meat's cheap. Feed them horse meat? Oh, sure, they love it. Only from you, Clark. Uh, are they in your house a lot of the time? No, only in the daytime. I put them out at night. Uh, naturally, eh? Uh, poor things, it's quite pitiful when they sit outside my bedroom window and howl. Yeah, that would break my heart. But we spend many happy evenings together, Lana in my lap, Claudette stretched out at my feet, and Hetty sitting on the floor with her nose in my hand. The affectionate type, huh? Hmm. Yes, they're all affectionate. At times, I have to beat them off. Gee, imagine that. You know, wherever I go, at least one of them trails along. The other night, I was having dinner at the Brown Derby, I looked down, and there was Claudette under the table. Gosh, they folly around like dogs. Well, what do you expect? That's what I expect. <laughs> but, Clark, with three of them around at once, don't they get jealous of each other? Oh, yes, terribly jealous. If I tickle one of them in the ribs, I have to tickle them all. <laughs> wow. But only once was there any serious trouble. What caused it? Well, they all take turns fetching my slippers. They regard it as quite a privilege. You're a murder. <laughs> what happened? Well, Lana fetched the slippers when it was uh, supposed to be Hetty's turn. So Hetty sneaked up behind Lana and bit her. <laughs> bit her? Yeah. Poor Lana couldn't sit down for a week. Oh, no! <laughs> Clark, 
Doc Gable is in the den. Yeah? He met George face-to-face, and he's green with envy. Oh, Gracie, envy didn't turn him green. It's that face-to-face that did it. (laughs) Bill, that's not true, and you know it. George has a beautiful face. Every feature is perfect. Perfect? Certainly. He can see with his eyes, hear with his ears, and smell with his nose. Isn't that perfect? Well, yeah, I'll admit George has got a point there. Uh, what about that? Wh- what about that handsome, beautifully shaped head? He's got a point there too. Yes, I've noticed that. Must chop up his hats pretty badly. Well, come on, Gracie. I'm anxious to go in and talk to Clark. Oh, now, Bill, look. Uh, George's whole career may depend upon that talk he's having with Gable. So promise me you won't change the subject to Maxwell House coffee. I give you my word, Gracie. I won't bring up the subject of coffee unless Gable mentions Maxwell House himself. Well, I don't think that'll happen. Let's go in. Okay. Hi, George. Hello, Clark, old man. Hello, Bill. Hello, Bill. How are you? Fine, thanks. Oh, say, Clark, there's a beautiful blonde singer at your studio I'm dying to meet. Uh, Marilyn somebody? Maxwell? Yeah, that's the girl. (laughs) Clark, would you take me to her house? Sure, Bill. I'll take you there. Where? To her house. Whose house? Marilyn. Marilyn whose? Marilyn Maxwell. Marilyn Maxwell's what? Marilyn Maxwell's house. Speaking of Maxwell... (laughs) That... That is the most wonderful coffee. Oh, now, Bill, you promised. Well, Clark brought it up. I didn't, Gracie. (laughs) But since he did, let me remind you that Maxwell House is rich, mellow, delicious, the result of careful selection and blending of choice Latin American coffees, radiant roasted to perfection. Uh, Bill, uh, when do you want to meet the blonde? Blonde? Oh, Clark, how can you talk about a blonde in the same breath with Maxwell House coffee? (laughs) Why, Maxwell House is the very best in coffee-drinking pleasure, yet it costs but a fraction of a penny more per cup than the cheapest coffee sold. Now let's take a breath and talk about the blonde. I thought so. Uh, What would you like to know about her, Bill? Are you kidding? What does any guy want to know about a girl? Does she drink Maxwell House coffee? (laughs) I hope so, because Maxwell House is bought and enjoyed by more people than any other brand of coffee at any price. Everybody knows Maxwell House is always good to the last drop. Well, nice to have seen you, Clark. So long. Well, Bill, uh, don't you want to meet the girl? Wouldn't you like to have a beautiful, blonde, curly head on your shoulder? I was born with one. So... <laughs> well, Mr. Gable, let's get down to business. Uh, what's your decision? Will George get in the hucksters? Of course he will. I'll see to it myself. <gasps> Wonderful. Here's 50 cents for his ticket. <laughs> now, I mean, will he make the picture? Will you recommend him for the lead? Well, I hesitate to recommend George for pictures because of his past. What's wrong with my past? There's been so much of it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on, Mr. Gable. Be a sport. Give up your career. Won't you do this little favor for an ex-serviceman? Oh, George, an ex-serviceman? He certainly is. When President Roosevelt called for volunteers, George said, Here I am, Teddy. You know, I gave those Spaniards plenty of trouble. Well, what, what, what do you say? To tell the truth, the decision isn't mine to make. A thing like that is decided by the head of the studio. Oh, in other words, if the head of Metro Golden Mayor told you to step aside for George, you'd do it? I'd have to. I see. Uh, you boys, excuse me for a moment. I'll be right back. Now, ha- have you got it straight, Meredith? Oh, I think so, Gracie. I'm to pose as the head of Mr. Gable's studio. Right. Now, let's go in. Uh, Mr. Gable, there's someone here to see you. Who is it? Well, um, have you ever met Louis B. Mayer? Well, I know him quite well. Ah. Uh. Well, um, have you ever met Mr. Goldwyn? Many times. Oh. Uh, how about Mr. Metro? <laughs> no, I've never met anyone by that name. Uh-huh. Uh, Mr. Gable, shake hands with Mr. Metro. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Pasternak, you Metro. Uh, head of Metro Goldwyn there. How do you do? Always happy to meet an employee, son. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, as, uh, as the young lady told you, my name is Pasternak U. Metro, and I'm afraid I have bad news for you. You have? Yes. 
Last evening, my assistant, L.B. Mayer, and I had a talk. <laughs> L.B., I said, what do you think of George Burns for the Hucksters? P.U., he said. <laughs> That's a great idea. Terrific. By the way, Meredith, I enjoyed your last concert at Hollywood Bowl. Well, thanks, Clark. How, uh, how'd you like my flute solo? I thought it was great. Did you? So did I. Of course, my lip isn't as strong as it used to be. Well, as I was saying, my name is Pasternak U. Metro. That's enough, Meredith. You might as well go. Well, very well. Glad to have been of help. Goodbye, all. Gracie, I'm ashamed of you. Pulling a thing like that on Clark Gable. Yeah, you're right, George. That was an awful trick. I'll see you later. Where are you going? I'll have to think of a better one. <laughs> Mr. Gable, I want you to know that none of this was my idea. For six weeks now, Gracie has hounded me into this. Mm. Well, I can see that unless we stop her, neither of us will have any rest. It's beyond me. I can't handle it. Perhaps I can. You mind if I try? No, go ahead. Well, Mrs. Byrne, may I see you for a moment? You won't get anywhere, Clark. Leave it to me. Yes? Mrs. Burns, I've reconsidered. Your husband will have the lead in the Hucksters. Oh, finally came to your senses, huh? Yes, I'm through. Oh, well, you'll find something to do. Open a little butcher shop. <laughs> I realize a butcher's salary isn't the same as a movie star's salary, but you can use the extra money. <laughs> I don't uh, mind for myself, but the new leading lady I discovered will lose her opportunity. Well, that's the break. She'll get over it. I searched for her for so long, but I didn't find the perfect one until now. Well, that's like she'll... Until now? You mean... Yes, you would have been wonderful. But it's too late. I'm out of the picture. Well, that's... That's the break. You have every quality the screen demands. Charm, intelligence, talent. But we both lost our chance. Well, that's... That's life. What a leading lady you would have made. People would have said, how can one so young be so beautiful? But it will never happen now. Well, that's... That's a mess, isn't it? <laughs> we could have played some beautiful love scenes together. But why cry over spilt milk? I'm out, and George is in. Oh, no, he's not. Huh? George Burns, if you ever open your big mouth about playing the lead in the Hucksters again, I'll leave you. Me open my mouth? Where, where did you ever get such a ridiculous idea? It was my idea? Claiming you'd be better than Clark Abel. Forgive him, Clark. He didn't know what he was saying. Yeah, forgive me, Clark. <laughs> okay, George. Clark Gable appeared through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of the Technicolor production, The Yearling. Join us again next week when we'll all be back. George Burns, Gracie Allen, Meredith Wilson and his orchestra, and yours truly, Bill Goodwin. The George Burns and Gracie Allen show is written by Paul Henning and Keith Fowler. Until next Thursday, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's number one preferred brand of coffee. Well, Gracie, you're just like all the other women. The minute Clark Abel turned on his charm, you forgot your husband. I did not forget my husband. You're still the only man for me, Harry. Harry? Uh, Fred? <laughs> Joe? My name is Pasternak U. Metro. Good night, everyone. Good night to you. Now stay tuned in for Noah Webster Says, which follows immediately over most of these stations. Get bird's eye. Get bird's eye French-style green beans. Delicious young beans as garden fresh as if you just picked them off the vine. Yes, wonderful eating. And trouble-free, all washed, trimmed, and cleaned for you. Stringless, too, and cut French-style. 
One box serves four people. So get bird's eye French-style green beans tomorrow. But be sure it's bird's eye. Remember... This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. visualize the difficulty encountered by your peacetime soldiers 
in running down a definite enemy of society. I believe as this story unfolds, you will become more and more conscious of how important it is to keep fingerprint identification of all persons on file against the time it is needed to track down a criminal or save an innocent citizen from dire disaster or the ignominy of a nameless grave. Professor Lindsley will now go on with the story. It is the 22nd of October in 1932. In the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Substation at Lancaster in the Mojave Desert, a summer liner still lingers on the hot breezes coming across the sagebrush. Flies buzz against the screen, and nothing it seemed ever happened in the sleepy little desert town. When suddenly the siesta silence is broken as a wild-eyed desert rat rushes into the office. There's the sheriff! I gotta see the sheriff right away! Are you the sheriff? Uh, no. no, I'm deputy in charge here. The sheriff's in Los Angeles. Yeah, what's the matter? I just found a dead woman off the road. Huh? A dead woman? Where? On the road, about five miles on the turnoff to my old ranch. Uh, who are you? Uh, my name is Fred Storm. I'm on my feet a little late. I got a job up there. And about a month ago, I tore down this shack I had down the road. It was a mining claim, and there was nothing on it. Well, uh, how about the dead woman? I'm coming to that. So I forgot a nail bar at the shack, and I'm going to leave it. My job a little late. So I stopped by the shack to get it. When I turned up the road, oh, here was this dead woman with no clothes on. Uh, are you sure she was dead? Oh, yeah, she was dead, all right. Uh, where is this place? Well, it's about five miles north and a half a mile east of the main road. Well, uh, uh, show me on the map. Yeah, well, uh, well let's not say this is, uh, yes, oh, yeah, yeah, here, 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 it is right here. Uh, oh, well, that's over in San Bernardino County. Now, I'll call Sheriff Sharp right away. San Bernardino County officers lose no time in getting to the scene of the crime. Warren's story is found to be true, and no suspicion is cast on him regarding the murder. For murder, it is found to be when Dr. Louisa Bacon of the San Bernardino County Hospital reports that the victim came to her death as the result of a multiple linear fracture at the hand of a person or persons unknown. However, there is no clue to the identity of the murdered woman, and police are momentarily stopped in their search for the murderer by their ignorance of the identity of the person murdered. The victim is totally unclothed, and the only clues found at the scene of the crime are tire marks, which, although possibly valuable in later identifications, are worthless at the beginning. There remains one meager hope on which the police rely. They fingerprint the dead woman and send the prints into the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office to be checked. It isn't long before Deputy Sheriff Brewster of Los Angeles County has Sheriff Shaw of San Bernardino on the long-distance phone. Sheriff, we've identified that murder victim. Who is she? Her name is Adam A. Cerny. Oh, she had a record, eh? Well, not exactly. In 1930, we arrested her and her husband, Gus Cerny, on suspicion of robbery. They'd been friends of a guy we had for a holdup. They cleared themselves okay, and we released them. Now we've located Cerny's sister and her husband here in Los Angeles. We've got his address. Mm -hmm. The sister hasn't seen either of them for three weeks, but uh, here's a tip you can run down. Uh, what's that? Cerny's mother lives in San Bernardino. She does? Yeah. What's her address? Uh, just a minute, I'll get it for you. I'm going to send one of the boys down to talk to her right away. <laughs> Deputy Sheriffs Oxnivet and Farley promptly visit Gus Cerny's mother. They explain their mission and show the old lady a picture of Ida May's body. She looks at it a long time in silence. No, ma'am? It, it might be Ida May. Oh, no, no, it can't be her. Why, I had dinner with Gus and Ida May just two weeks ago. They were both well and happy, and besides, her sister lives just two doors from the children. And would have notified me if there was anything wrong with me. How long has your son been married to this girl? Why, 
About three years. What's his business? Well, he's a telephone lineman by trade. Does he drive a car? Yes, a, a blue Chrysler. License number? License number? I don't know it. Uh, we want to get to the bottom of this, ma'am. Uh, I wonder if you'd come with us to Victorville and look at the body. Why, yes, if you want me to. Oh, but I'm sure the poor girl is not Ida May. mother-in-law's conviction disappears in the mortuary in Victorville. And just before she faints, she positively identifies the murder victim as Ida Mae Cerny. Next day, the responsibility of the investigation of the crime passes to the Los Angeles Police Department when Deputy Sheriff William Bright, during a visit to the Cerny's home, discovers evidence that the crime was committed there. Within a half hour, Inspector Davidson and Lieutenant Silkus join Bright at the little house on Laclede Avenue. Well, Captain, here we are. What's first? Your case, Inspector. Yeah. Well, there's no sign of murder here in the living room. Perhaps not, but look into the bedroom here. Good Lord. Shambles. Hmm. Uh... Come on, just go over this room for fingerprints. Finger, you want these blood-stained bed sheets for analysis? Yeah. I'd better cut away sections of this woodwork, too. Oh, go ahead. Looks like whoever did it dumped out the contents of the suitcase from the way those clothes are strewn around the bed. Yeah, it looks that way. Hmm. Yeah, here's a cushion from a rumble seat. Yeah, it's getting easier to reconstruct this crime every minute. As I read your thoughts, whoever did it killed her here. And put the body into the rumble seat of the car and drove it out to the desert. That's about it. Well, I don't know whose car you'll be looking for, but here's a line on one car. What's this? A payment notice from the finance company for monthly installments on Cerny's car. You wouldn't be looking for that one, would you, Inspector? Well, you never can tell, Captain. Never can tell. It'd be a good thing to get the license number from the finance company anyway. I'd sort of like to talk to Cerny. Well, in any case, you'll want to talk to Ida May's cousin. Cousin? Yeah. Where she live? Just two doors down the street. While the fingerprint expert and the photographer are taking care of the routine matters at the Cerny residence, Inspector Davidson interviews Ida May's cousin. Why, I talked to Ida May on the night of the 18th. She and Gus were getting ready to go to Palm Springs to look for work, and she wanted to borrow a cord for her electric iron. So I lent it to her, and I told her to bring it right back, but she didn't. And I needed it to make coffee uh, in the morning. Just a minute, ma'am. Uh, you didn't see her after the 18th? No. I sent a boy over after the cord, but there was no one at home, so I suppose she'd gone off to Palm Springs like she said she was going to be. Well, weren't you worried when you didn't hear from her? Oh, no. Gus and I to me often went away and stayed a week without writing to anyone. Mm. Did they ever fight with each other? No. They always seemed very happy together. Oh, but I heard an argument once. Oh? Well, not really a fight, but Gus couldn't understand why Ida May didn't try to get some of the money that was coming to her from an estate or, I don't know, something. Oh, you'd inherited some money, eh? Well, oh, yes, but, oh, you know, it was tied up in some way or another. And Gus thought she should try to get it right away because they were both broke. Well, of course, it's none of my business, but I... Inheritance for Mrs. Cerny? What does it consist of? 
friend of hers died some time ago in Eaton, Ohio, and left her a tidy little sum, several thousand dollars, which she was to get when she became 21. Yes. Well, Mrs. Finney came to me recently and asked me to try to get her an advance of $800. Four hundred of this was to be put into the down payment of their car, and the remainder to be used for monthly payment. Was Mr. Finney aware of this? Oh, yes, yes. Matter of fact, he was quite agreeable to it. That is, uh, to the down payment, but I believe they had some argument about the use of the other 400. Is that so? Uh, yes. <laughs> it seems Cerny uh, wanted to use it for living expenses, and Artemy insisted that he should try harder to get some work. <laughs> well, was she in possession of any large sum of money at the time of her death? No, not to my knowledge. That is, uh, certainly not from the estate. Thank you, Mr. Shoemaker. What you've told us clears up one angle of the investigation. Following the interview with the attorney... Silkus travels to the scene of the crime, accompanied by San Bernardino deputy sheriffs and the photographer. Minutely, they investigate the wheel tracks made by the murder car. There's a big difference in the tracks of these two rear tires. Notice, Sheriff, that although they're worn smooth in the center, you can see the bead at the side. See, the right rear has a sort of a knobby tread, and the left rear has a diamond-shaped uh, That's right, Lieutenant. Uh, we can only find a blue Chrysler Roadster. It'll be a cinch to spot it by the tires. But why he went to such an effort to cart the body all the way out here is beyond me. Well, Lieutenant, any desert rat could tell you that. Why, what's the answer? Simple. See these prints in the sand here around the spot where the body was found? Yes. Childy tracks. Hmm. They live north there on those low hills. The wind was fortunately coming from that direction up until the time we found the body. And then it shifted to the south, and the coyotes came. Now, if the wind had been right, the murderer of that woman would be beyond any possibility of capture. For all that would have been left here would be a pile of bones. Upon his return to headquarters, Silkus is summoned to Inspector Davidson's office. I just received word from you, Mahorkas, that our blue Chrysler Roadster license number 1Z81062 there at 4 a.m. October 20th. Good. Who was driving it? Yeah, they don't take the names down there anymore. They ought to make our work easier. But according to the investigations you've made, what cities has Cerny lived in? Just a minute. I've got the list here someplace. Yeah, here it is. He's lived in Chicago, Miami, Denver, Oklahoma City, El Paso, San Antonio, Ames, Iowa, and Heron, Illinois. All right. Send a telegram to the chief of police in each of those cities asking him to arrest Gus Cerny for murder. to discover more definitely what Cerny's destination might be, Silkus once more interviews Gus's brother-in-law. Well, Mr. Harris, we've gotten word that Gus's car went through Yuma on the morning of the 20th. Well, that looks bad, doesn't it? The newspaper we found in the house on the Cleed Street was dated the 18th. That would seem to establish a murder around that date. Two days later, he leaves the state. Anyway, we've asked the police in every town he's lived in to be on the lookout for him to arrest him for murder. Well, if he did this thing, I want to see him brought back and prosecuted to the fullest extent. We police officers seldom meet an attitude like that, Mr. Harris. Well, what do you mean? Well, blood is thicker than water. Yes, I know. Of course, Gus is only my brother-in-law. But when I say I want to see him answer for this crime if he did it, I speak for my wife as well as Gus's other brothers. That's fine, Mr. Harris, and it's going to make our job easier. Now, tell me, is there any more light you can throw on this case? Well, there's one thing that you might want to know. What's that? It's something the family had agreed to keep quiet about. Mm-hmm. Several years ago, Gus married a girl named Mary Young in Carbondale, Illinois. Later, he deserted her and her baby and came to California. He met Ida May and married her in Tijuana. About three months ago, Gus and Ida May went east for a visit. Now, I don't know whether Ida May found out about it then or not. But when Gus came back, he said he was afraid Mary's family would make trouble for him and Ida May. So, he's a bigamist in any case. Yes, I guess that's right. Well, thanks for that piece of dope, Mr. Harris. We'll wire Carbondale and find out if he's been there.
Crooks wires Carbondale authorities, and two days later, he excitedly enters Davidson's office. Well, Inspector, the trail's getting hot. What do you got? Telegram from the chief at Carbondale. What does it say? Duff Sunny here, October 23rd. Left, same night. Believed headed for Chicago. Good. Where the Chicago police? Now, wait a minute, Inspector. Hmm? They're not sure he's headed for Chicago. And anyway, we've already asked Chicago as well as those other towns to look for him. Well? I found out today that Gus Cerny borrowed $10 from a gang foreman when he couldn't get his paycheck on the 19th. He's hard up. He's going to wire his family here for money as sure as I'm a day old. Fine. Then in that case, make arrangements with Western Union to send us any telegrams addressed to any members of the Cerny family. Well, but the family will cooperate. Mr. Harris said he'd let us know just as soon as they got work. Just the same, Filkers. We don't depend on that. Line up the Western Union and get any telegrams that are coming before they do. Later, a telegram arrives in Los Angeles addressed to Cerny's brother and requesting him to send $10 to Gus at a certain Western Union office in Chicago. Two hours before the telegram is delivered to see, it is in the hands of the Los Angeles police. And by the time it's delivered, Chicago police have been tipped off and are staked out on the indicated Western Union office. The vigil of the two detectives is finally rewarded when a blue Chrysler Roadster pulls up before the telegraph office. The officers watch it from their car. Well, there's a blue Roadster. Chrysler, too. Yeah, with California plate. Yeah, check the number. 1Z8106. Mm-hmm. That ought to be him. Well, let's uh, get a, let him get into the office and claim his telegram. Okay. He's going in now. We better move toward the door. All right. Come on. <coughs> Looks like our man, all right. Answer the description. Yeah, that's the guy. What'd he do, Ed, do you know? Yeah. Bumped off his wife, according to the lieutenant. What's criminal about that? I know a lot of wives that ought to be bumped off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here he comes. Okay. What's his name? Shirley. Shirley. Huh? All right. You're under arrest, Shirley. What? You're under arrest. Oh, what for? You're wanted for murder in Los Angeles. Well, some mistake. Well, we can talk that over down at the detective bureau. We got orders to bring in, so you better come along peaceably. Oh, okay. Let's go. <laughs> Gus Cerny maintains an uncommitting silence, he agrees to sign a waiver of extradition. Lieutenant Baggett and Silkus are appointed state agents by District Attorney Buren Pitt and sent to Chicago to bring Cerny back. Less than a week later, Silkus and Baggett face Cerny in the Cook County Jail. Well, I'm sort of glad to see you guys. The accommodations in this jail aren't exactly the same as the Palmer House. Yeah, I guess that's right, Cerny. Have a good trip, Gus? Yeah, okay. I made pretty good time. Did your car hold up okay? Yeah, worked like a dream. Any tire trouble? Nope. Well, that is just one flat at Cobden, Illinois. And all the tires that were on your car when you left California are still on it, hmm? Yeah, that's right. Listen, fellas, what do you care about tires? You came after me, apparently. What do you want me for? Come on, let me in on it. Well, let's not go into that tonight, Gus. You're tired, and so are we. Go back to your cell. We'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> admission that the blue Chrysler carries the same tires with which it had left California, the two detectives investigate the car the next morning. Now, let's see. The left rear was the diamond tread. It isn't on the car. Take a look at the spare. That might be the one he changed. Yeah. Here it is. Diamond tread. Same as the tracks in the desert. Now about the right rear. It's got nubs on it. This is the car, all right. Okay. Now, let's get a look at that rumble seat. Hmm. Cushion's gone. Check another time. Baggett, while I'm looking around this rumble seat, see if there's a tool kit in the car. Right. Yeah, here's one in the pocket. Fine, and look what I found. What? Under the mat in the rumble seat, blood stain. Say, that guy must be nuts leaving all this evidence around. Let's see what's in that tool kit. Okay. Wrench, tire pump, screwdriver. Uh-oh. What's that? Looks like a lineman's tool. Certainly was a lineman, wasn't he? Yep. And look at it, stained with blood. That's what he killed her with. Cerny is as good as swinging right now. Silkus and Baggett lose no time getting back to the jail to interview Cerny. Well, Gus, we're ready to talk to you now. What do you want? What's it all about? 
We're going to question you about the disappearance of your wife, Ida May, and your sudden departure from Los Angeles at the same time. Oh, well, what do you want to know? Well, we already know that you killed your wife as she lay in bed in the house on Laclede Street. And we know you threw the cushion out of the lumber seat of your roadster, threw her body in, and then drove out to the desert and left her body where you thought it had never been found. Now we want the whole story, Gus, if you choose to tell us. If you don't, we've got enough to hang you anyway. I guess you got me. I may as well tell you everything. You understand that whatever you say now will be used against you in court. I understand. Why did you kill her? I don't know. Did you kill her with this pair of pliers? I don't know. I, maybe. I, I always kept a kit of tools in the kitchen. Maybe that's what I used. When did you do it? About 10 or 11 o'clock on the 18th, just after we went to bed. I was going to give myself up. I drove down to the city hall and sat outside for an hour or more, trying to get up enough guts to go in and do it. Was the body in the car then? Yeah. Why didn't you give yourself up? I don't know. What did you do after you left the city hall? Well, I drove out into the desert. I sat on the running board of the car out there for a long time, trying to figure out what to do. And, and finally, I took her out and left her there in the desert. Then what'd you do? I went back to San Fernando and tried to get my paycheck. And I couldn't. I borrowed $10 from the foreman, and then I went back to the house. Well, I packed my bag, and I left for Yuma. Drove straight through and stopped in Carbondale to see Mary, my wife. When did you marry her? Oh, Mary? Yeah. Oh, about eight years ago. You ever been divorced from her? No, sir. Did you go through a marriage ceremony with Ida May and Tijuana? Yes. Known at the time you weren't divorced from Mary? Yes. Is it true that you feared revenge from Mary or her family because you were bigamously married to Ida May? Where did you hear that? Never mind. Is it true? Now, you've been talking to Harris. That's what I told Is him. Is it true? Oh, Mary wouldn't do anything to me. Why, she's the sweetest girl in the world. She's been... Willing to take me back. Why did you kill Ida I Mary? don't know. Was it because you wanted to return to Mary and your child? I don't know. I tell you, I don't know. I did it and I've confessed. Now, let me alone. But I don't know why I did it. And Gus Cerny continued to claim that he didn't know why he killed Ida May. He never has confessed his motive. But motives did not concern us with such a splendid case our officers had constructed. Silkus and Baggett brought Gus back to Los Angeles, and he was booked at the Los Angeles County Jail on November 29, 1932. A few days later, the grand jury indicted him on a murder charge. He pleaded not guilty, and not guilty by reason of insanity, and repudiated his confession. We had expected that, but we were confident in our case. Apparently, he saw how strong it was, for on January 9, 1933, he withdrew his plea of not guilty and fell back on the insanity defense. On February 14th, having changed counsel, he withdrew the insanity plea and threw himself on the mercy of the court. That was a wise move and saved his life for Judge Aguilar sentenced him to serve the remainder of his natural life in San Quentin Prison. Thank you, Chief Davis.
the new radio log for August is now available, containing a complete list of forthcoming cases to be broadcast on Calling All Cars and another Rio Grande program. Drive into your neighborhood Rio Grande service station tomorrow and ask for the August radio log. It's free. Broadcast 37 regarding a murder. Suspect in this case now in custody. That's all. Rose and Quist. confidential files of the Los Angeles Police Force and is written and produced by William N. Robeson. The orchestra is under the direction of Frederick Stark. And this is Frederick Lindsley bidding you good night for the Rio Grande Oil Company. <laughs>